Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Professor Claudia Juzwiak. Claudia is a Brazilian sports dietitian, educator and researcher who has worked with the Brazilian para track and field team in the past. She's currently the Associate Professor of Human Movement Sciences at the Universidade Federal de Sao Paulo. So welcome to the podcast, Claudia. Thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here with you. An honor as well. Mm. I'm excited to, to have this conversation with you. But before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got into working with para-athletes? I began my career working with children in pediatrics. But then I had an opportunity in 1997 to go to Spain, Barcelona, and there I had an opportunity to work in a high-performance center. So that's how I got into sports. Mm -hmm. uh, I tried to do something with pediatrics and sports nutrition. So for some time, I used to work only with adolescent athletes, mm -hmm. and that's how I got into the sports career. And then in 2014, I was already a professor at my university. I was approached by a colleague who worked at the Paralympic Committee. He is uh, uh, from the physical education area, and they were looking for a, a nutritionist. So I began working with him, and actually we were doing all the evaluations of the Paralympic track and field team four times a, a year, and they, they were congregated in a, in a city, all the, the athletes from Brazil, from the different areas of Brazil. And during those four weeks during the year, we would evaluate them. So I was in charge of the nutrition evaluation. And then I also developed some uh, studies and also uh, nutrition education for them. But then due to my many different uh, tasks in the university, I wasn't able to continue with this time with them. So another nutritionist, Daniel Joaquin, which you know him, mm -hmm. um, began working with them. And we still did some studies after that. So that's how I, mm. I got to work with Paralympic athletes. Great. And so in terms of your background, most of the time you're doing some research. And so some of the research projects that you've been involved in has looked at the energy intake and the energy needs of some of those para track and field athletes, correct? Yes, correct. I think the first study we, we did was uh, actually trying to find uh, the best way to evaluate those athletes, which is mm -hmm. this paper we already with Danielle uh, just mentioned and my physical education colleague, Ciro Winkler, we did this paper trying to find the best equation to estimate resting metabolic rate of para-athletes. Mm -hmm. And after that, we, we got very interested about trying to understand if energy availability was adequate in our, our population. We, I worked specifically with track and field, so I have experience mm -hmm. with this type of group. Okay. And so talk to us about energy availability. That's the topic that we wanted to focus on today in this podcast. So tell us about the concept of energy availability. Energy availability is the amount of energy you have to cover all the energy expenditure required for all our body functions and our daily activities. 
And if it's insufficient, we may have some consequences. And to see if we, our energy availability is adequate, we have to consider the cost of energy expenditure with exercise and sports activity. So mm-hmm. we, we can calculate it. There's an equation to calculate it. Take energy intake minus the exercise energy expenditure and you adjust it. That means in the equation, you divide it by fat-free mm-hmm. mass. So that's how we estimate if energy availability is adequate. You have a situation of low energy availability. That means you don't have sufficient energy for all the bodily functions and living activities after Mm -hmm. subtracting the cost of exercise. When you have an intake uh, of 30 or less kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass, this is the cutoff point that has been used in most studies, Mm -hmm. although we have to be careful about this value because it was obtained from studies with recreational able-bodied females with full body functioning fat-free mass. So it's Mm -hmm. a a value that has been uh, discussed in the literature, always with having in mind that maybe we need more research to understand if the cutoff values are the same for different populations of athletes, including para-athletes. Yeah. And so why might it be of concern if energy availability is is low, is considered to be insufficient for the body functions as well as the, the exercise? Well, if you have a situation of low energy availability, it will have implications for many body systems. It can compromise health and performance in short term and long term. Low energy availability has been considered as the center cause of a number of impaired physiological functions, and it can involve a variety of systems such as cardiovascular, metabolic, immunological. It can lead to bone loss, hormonal dysfunctions, uh, even psychological alterations. And this wide set of symptoms uh, has been called as relative energy deficiency in sports, that, and we call it RADS for short. And okay. these symptoms affect both female and male athletes, and we can think that it also involves para-athletes. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the signs that an athlete might get or the symptoms that they may get if they were in low energy availability? There are some effects that are that won't be perceived by the athletes easily. For example, Mm -hmm. literature shows that even very short periods of low energy availability, such as five days, already have some impact on, for example, blood glucose or leptin Mm -hmm. levels or cortisol. So maybe in five days, the athlete won't perceive anything, but things will be happening organically. But if the, the low energy availability is maintained for longer periods, and this will become more severe and symptoms will be then more easily perceived, not only by the athlete, but also by the team who works with the athletes. Uh, so uh, athletes may have suppression of resting metabolic rate, alterations in, in hormone Productions, for example, thyroid hormones, testosterone, and estrogen. In case of female athletes, this will cause disruption of menstrual function. So this is an important sign for female athletes if they have any alteration so the, in their menstrual yes. function. So losing their menstrual cycle or or having a, a more irregular cycle. It can stop 
and they can be mm -hmm. amenorrheic or they can have a lesser cycles. Yep. Uh, they can have an increase in, in stress fractures, and this is caused by bone mass loss, which in the evolution of the low energy availability, the, the continuity of the low energy availability situation may become an osteopenia and even osteoporosis. They have compromised mm -hmm. immunity. They might have nutrient inadequacies, such as iron, for example, which is also very important for female athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, they can have more fatigue. They can increase their risk of injury during exercise. They mm -hmm. uh, present reduced responsiveness to training and performance. And those uh, psychological consequences I just mentioned may include eating disorders or disordered eatings. So mm -hmm. this, uh, these are some of the, the symptoms uh, that athletes can show. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm guessing that some of them, they won't necessarily show all the symptoms, that there just may be some symptoms. So, for example, they just seem to be getting sick all the time, even though they still maybe have their menstrual cycle, for example. Yes, for example. All this group of the set of symptoms, they can happen in different ways for athletes mm -hmm. that present low energy availability. So we have mm -hmm. to be very aware of the situation to, to be able to detect it very early when they have any kind of problem. And so what are some of the tests that can be done if, if there's a suspicion that an athlete is in low energy availability? Well, um, you can actually calculate, as I said, the energy availability. So the first component of these equations is uh, understanding how, how not, what athletes eat. So mm -hmm. I think the first step is to have a very good knowledge of energy intake. So mm -hmm. for that, we can use the uh, food inquiries, 24-hour uh, recalls, food registries, but we have to have in mind that this, all these tools that are basic in nutrition, but they all have this problem that athletes can underestimate or overestimate what they eat. They have to rely on memory if it's a 24-hour mm -hmm. recall. If you ask for a food registry, they may change what they eat to register it. So we have to be very careful, but it's undoubtedly one of the main tools we have to first detect that there's something wrong about energy intake. We can always improve the quality of the information if you ask athletes to photograph what they eat. I have a very good experience with using photographic registry as well as written. Or we can ask the athletes to weight what they eat and what they not eat. So this is a little bit more complicated because they have to have some training. Yeah. But so first of all, uh, understanding what athletes eat gives lots of information. Then if we uh, know how much athletes expand in exercise, energy expenditure in exercise and sports, this is the second component of the equation. It's a little mm -hmm. bit more complicated for nutritionists to measure it. We can use some, if we do it in laboratories, we can have the indirect calorimetry, but it's not a a useful tool for everyday following up of athletes. Mm -hmm. So we can still use smart watches or actigraphy, or which is 
usually more used is the training log, and then we can transform the information using uh, metabolic equivalence tables to understand how much was expended in exercise. But also there's a, a chance of uh, lack of accuracy in this information. And do you think the, the tools, so if we think about para-athletes and the research that you did with the para-athletes, you know, things like the smart watches, how accurate do you think they are across all of the para-athletes in actually measuring energy expenditure or the, the amount of calories that they use during exercise? Well, in the study we did, we used an accelerometer. But I've been mm -hmm. using the smartwatch with able-bodied athletes, and there's always a, an error that we expect to have in this measurement. Mm -hmm. But with the accelerometer, even the accelerometer, which is a, a better tool than, I, I believe it's a better tool than the smartwatch, we mm -hmm. still may have inaccurate information with para-athletes because all these tools were developed for able-bodied people. So. Mm -hmm. It might be measuring exactly what athletes expand. But I also feel that training logs are very difficult because we also have tables developed with metabolic equivalents, developed with able-bodied athletes. So there are some tables uh, developed for especially wheelchair athletes, but we don't have enough information. I think we have a, a dearth of information for para-athletes. Yeah, and it could be different because you've got inefficiencies of movement. Yes. For example, someone with cerebral palsy or an, an amputee, they may be quite inefficient with their movement, which increases their energy expenditure, correct? Yes, and uh, the, the tool won't be able to get all this different mm -hmm. movement from the able-bodied athletes. Mm. And, and last but not least, we have the, the last component, which is fat-free mass and body mm -hmm. composition is also something that we have to be careful because depending on the method, it might be more or less inaccurate. And even mm -hmm. DEXA, which is considered a gold standard, depending on the disability, it won't be good enough. Now, for example, if you have a person with a limb deficiency, DEXA won't be able to do a, an adequate measurement. Or if you have an athlete that had uh, some kind of a metal rod or any other, I, I don't know how to say that, Liz, <laughs> metal rod. <or laughs> Implants. Implant. It, it won't be able to, to go into the DEXA because DEXA, you can have anything metal. Or if you have someone mm. that has spasms that, can happen, for example, in some uh, cerebral palsy situations, it won't work for DEXA as well. So we, we have, even with DEXA, it won't be able to be used for all kinds of disabilities. So mm -hmm. all the components of the equation, they are not only for para-athletes, but especially for para-athletes, they might have inaccuracies. So we have to be very careful when we use this uh, calculation, but mm -hmm. still, it's a way of trying to, to discover if energy availability is adequate or not. Mm -hmm. um, there's indication that we should also, we could also use some other tools. For example, there are some questionnaires, which is uh, very good because the questionnaires can 
help us in a very easy way because all those uh, measurements, they take time, they are costly. Sometimes you have to take the athletes to laboratories. It's not practical. Mm -hmm. So the questionnaires may uh, not only complement the information from the calculation, but also be indicators, bring information, bring results that indicate the presence of symptoms of low energy availability. For example, mm -hmm. I like the LIFQ, the Low Energy Availability Female Questionnaire, which was developed mm -hmm. by Anna Melling with endurance athletes in um, Scandinavia. It has three dimensions. It works with symptoms of gastrointestinal, bone loss, uh, stress injuries, and mm -hmm. also menstrual symptoms. Mm -hmm. And it, you have a, actually a, a result that shows the, the risk of triad. But so mm -hmm. it gives some indication. It's a screening tool, and I think mm -hmm. it can help. Also, questionnaires that evaluate if there's any kind of uh, eating disorders may help because when the athlete has eating disorders, there's a great chance, a greater chance of low energy availability. So mm -hmm. all the questionnaires for bite, eat, body shape questionnaire that also indicates if the athlete has some kind of uh, negative body image perception. Mm -hmm. Everything can help us understand if there are signs that low energy availability are present. Mm. Yeah, but there's no one method that we've found that works really well or that actually gives us super accurate information across the board. No, we still don't mm -hmm. have a, a gold standard, mm -hmm. not for para-athletes and not for able-bodied athletes as well. There's lots yeah. of questioning in the literature now. Is the yeah. cutoff point of 30 the best cutoff point for all groups? What are the best ways to measure all the uh, energy availability components to put in the equation? So uh, mm -hmm. most of the scientific production has been questioning how we can improve the diagnosis of low energy availability. Mm. And so I guess if you think about it, athletes can inadvertently potentially get into low energy availability because they're trying to you know, reduce body fat. So they reduce their energy intake relative to their exercise. What's the difference between reducing their energy intake for to lose body fat versus actually getting into low energy availability? Well, I think that uh, basically uh, low energy availability will be the result of a failure to adequate energy intake to training load, mm -hmm. right? So if athletes are looking for a better weight or better body fat and this program of losing fat and or weight is too restricted in energy, it will lead to low energy availability. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have is that maybe for a few days, uh, a reduced energy availability, that means the value between 30, which is the cutoff point for low energy availability, and 45 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass, which would be the ideal values. That's what mm -hmm. we have in the literature. This value in between 30 and 45 could be used as a, 
a guidelines, not a guidelines. This is a bit too strong word. I don't like this word, Liz. <laughs> but just a, uh, you know, if athletes uh, are in a reduced energy availability for some short period of time to achieve a, a weight loss, and it's conscious of what his uh, her aims and the time they're using it, and they are especially if they have a nutritionist working with them. It's possible to, to to do this, but if the the athlete is doing it, you know, without any knowledge and just for a long time and very restrict diet, or instead of restricting the diet, it's uh, in, increasing the training load. Mm-hmm. Actually, just the, the 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 idea is that it's provoking this inadequacy between intake and expenditure. Then it can be very dangerous and lead to the low energy availability consequences. So I'm not sure if it was very good, this answer, Liz. No, 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 it's great. I mean, basically, if you if you keep restricting, it's not a good thing. It, it will get to a point where you're actually compromising your body physically, yes. potentially reducing your metabolism, potentially not being out, actually it's counterproductive to losing weight and you start to induce other issues like your mental health and and mental well-being, your bone density, your immune function, the risk of injury and all of those things. So, yeah. The the Um, ideal scenario would be that all athletes would be with a nutritionist. So (laughs) this this could be, you know, a, a program, a very well planned program to lose weight or body yeah. fat. But unfortunately, yeah. life is not like this. And sometimes athletes, you know, just have their own ideas, follow what other athletes are doing, following, you know, all those influencers. And they may unintentionally, sometimes it's even unintentionally, due to lack of knowledge of their real mm-hmm. energy needs, just go into a situation of low energy availability. And so with the research that you did with the para-athletes, were they eating enough energy for their needs or did you find that actually in that group there was that risk of low energy availability? We worked with 17 track sprinters, male and female. They had Mm -hmm. visual impairment or cerebral palsy or they were limb, limb deficient, but... They had a maximum of 2.5% of uh, limb loss in relation to the, their body. We worked in a, a typical situation. As I mentioned, we worked in those weeks of evaluation that all the athletes were congregated and we did all the evaluations in a specific city in Brazil. And so mm-hmm. they stayed in a place where food was different from what they usually Eight. Actually, mm. we, we were careful to observe that all the usual cultural food were available in this place, mm-hmm. but they had a diversity that was different from their everyday life. And so maybe mm-hmm. that led to, you know, I want to eat this and this as well because it looks so nice, it smells so good. Mm-hmm. So maybe they ate a little bit different from their usual food ways. And mm-hmm. also, as they were in a special week that they had evaluations, they were training, but they were not training also their usual training load training because loads. they had to stop to go to do a DEXA or to do exams. So 
we had this a typical situation. We worked mm-hmm. with food registries during those uh, four days, during one of the weeks we, we evaluated them and we used photographs that, that were made by one of the researchers was Danielle, who was doing the photographs. So they were very accurate. Mm-hmm. He also registered everything that the athletes had on their plates and also had the, we used the accelerometer for energy expenditure and exercise. And unfortunately, we used skin folds because we didn't have the DEXA measurements of this athlete. And mm-hmm. they had reduced energy availability. The mean intake, I have the data here with me. The visual impaired athletes had a mean intake of 36 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass. The mm-hmm. athletes with uh, limb deficiency, 37, and the cerebral palsy athletes, 39. Females had eight females that had 32.5. But then we mm-hmm. looked into the each day, and for example, low energy availability for more than two days uh, wasn't found. So this is something interesting because we work, of course, with the mean. And mm-hmm. yep. But but then when you look every day, they have very different intakes, mm-hmm. and it's just to realize that. Food intake varies so much, <laughs> depending on mm-hmm. the hunger, depending on the day, depending on the availability of food that day, who cooked for the, the athlete, was it available or not? So we just have to be careful with the mean. Maybe sometimes mm-hmm. look into the into the days. Uh, I think it was mm-hmm. Joelle Flick. She has a paper with Thomas Egger and... Yep. They found, for example, I found this very interesting. Low energy availability was found in 73% of the days of the female athletes compared with 30% of male. She worked with wheelchair athletes, 14 Mm -hmm. male. But what was interesting is that the athletes weighted their their food. So it's a more precise food record. And she Mm -hmm. had seven days food records. So mm. more information. But I think this is really interesting to see that we have to look beyond the mean value, but also how it's distributed this uh, low energy availability or adequate availability. Mm-hmm. And and that makes sense. Not only does food intake vary from day to day, but training load also varies from day to day. So you can imagine perhaps some athletes may be okay on a light training day but when it's a heavy training day sometimes they don't adjust adequately with their food intake upwards and so may create a situation of low energy availability on certain training days would you think yes yes i think that i have it's not with a with para athletes but i have a student who just finished her master degree and she worked with surfers Mm -hmm. and they spend a long time surfing without eating actually without mm-hmm. drinking as well. And they had, uh, f- uh, they were male professional surfers and they had very low energy availability on training. Mm-hmm. On yep. top of the hours spent surfing, they also were very active and they they had other exercises during the days. Uh, they, they used to move from one place to the other with bicycle, which we also included mm-hmm. in the equation for the exercise expenditure. So they, the days they served, it was really, really worrying how low energy intake, mm-hmm. energy availability was. We're trying mm-hmm. to publish this paper list. <laughs> 
Mm. Yeah, but I think it, it's a really interesting reflection that you know each athlete could get into a, a low energy availability state either deliberately by virtue of trying to restrict their energy intake, you know, to to mm. control their body composition or inadvertently through an eating disorder, as you said initially, or just simply by not meeting the extra demand of the training that they have. But irrespective of how they get into it, if mm-hmm. they do that consistently enough over time, then it's going to have an impact. Yes. Yep. Exactly. And so do you think some of that is because of a lack of knowledge or why do you think some athletes can get into that scenario inadvertently? Yeah, I think some of them lack knowledge about their energy needs and the importance of changing their energy intake according to periodization of training. Mm -hmm. Also, not so common in my experience, but some of them may not adjust their eating intake because they have exercise-induced appetite suppression. Mm -hmm. Some of them have difficulties with their cooking skills. So they eat what is available, maybe sometimes, you know, just a snack or something. Um, Mm -hmm. Here in Brazil, it's not uncommon to see athletes with insufficient resources to buy enough food. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, we talked about the inadequate program of weight loss. I think this is one of the main reasons, in my experience, for uh, insufficient energy intake. In para-athletes, I would call attention to this question about the inadequate program of weight loss, particularly important in wheelchair athletes that are worried to fit the sports chair or Mm. uh, athletes with limb deficiency worried about fitting the prosthetics. Also Mm. in para-athletes, I call attention to some other specificities. For example, we talked about it already, but some athletes that have an extra energy expenditure because they have muscle spasms or they have a gait. Mm. I mentioned the lack of cooking skills, but I would say that some other limitations for buying, preparing, organizing food, maybe the athlete is dependent on another person for these tasks. Mm. Some para-athletes may have oral or motor dysfunctions, which will affect intake. For example, difficulty in chewing, swallowing. Uh, they may present uh, food aversions or sensitivities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot forget that uh, some of them may have pain due to injury and use pain medications that may affect appetite. Yep. And specifically in the case of uh, spinal cord injury athlete. I don't have much experience of them, but the literature says that uh, sometimes they have excessive fiber intake to improve bowel function, and that may Mm -hmm. lead to a low energy intake. They might, depending on the site of the the injury, have a lower gastric emptying and longer feeling Mm -hmm. of satiety. They have, uh, some of them, a problem with the body posture because they operate their wheelchair uh, with their total body weight resting on their stomach so they may have an increasing feeling of fullness and that may affect Mm -hmm. appetite so all the causes uh, that may be presented in able body athletes may be causes of uh, low energy intake in para athletes but they may have some other additional causes that they have to take into consideration Mm -hmm. yep 
Yeah, that's a, a really important point. And I guess, you know, the re- the research specific to para-athletes is pretty few and far between. Pretty much the work that you've done and a couple of a couple of papers in spinal cord injured or wheelchair athletes and, and that's pretty much all we have. So what do you think the the key things that you would recommend to, to athletes are? Well, I believe that the first strategy is to create awareness of athletes, but also coaches, and especially if we're talking about adolescent athletes, families, of what Mm -hmm. low energy availability is, its causes, and all the consequences we talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very, very important that the team that works with athletes are able to identify any sign or negative behavior that could lead to low energy availability. So Mm -hmm. this um, identification should occur in very, very early stage so we can just stop the process. We have to be more aware in higher risk sports. For example, I work with rhythm gymnastics, a very young group of rhythm gymnastics. So it's a very Mm -hmm. high risk sport about all, all this body image thing. So we have to be very aware of negative body image or that if they are worried about controlling their food when they are six, seven years old already. Mm. About yep. We also yep. have to have, I believe this very strongly, that we have to sometimes have a less toxic environment about weight and body composition. I think especially in aesthetics, sports, this is very strong and this can lead to eating disorders and disordered eating. So we have to try to to have less pressure on athletes or work Mm -hmm. the the idea of weight and body composition in a way that it doesn't feel so, that they are being so pressured uh, Mm -hmm. to minimize the development of these problems, which are very, very important to a trigger of low energy availability. Mm-hmm. Low energy yep. availability can occur without eating disorders, but if you have an eating disorder or disordered eating, the chances are great. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And what about any recommendations that you'd have for practitioners? And and this could be you know, physiologists or nutritionists or psychologists who are working with athletes and, and even coaches, you know, where do they go to if they are concerned about an athlete who has maybe is not not responding to training effect- effectively, is more tired than what they expect them to be, is, you know, perhaps a bit more moody, is maybe getting injured or ill more frequently, what can they do? Where should they go to first? I think this can vary depending on the country you are, depending on the <laughs> team that is uh, following the, the athletes. I would recommend if you have a, a team that you can forward your athlete, uh, maybe a nutritionist, this is, would be the first one, the, a registered dietitian to evaluate food intake and see if, and not only energy, but maybe it, if uh, other nutrients are lacking, if carbohydrate mm-hmm. and protein are in adequate um, amounts, even the distribution of food along the day in relation to uh, training load, for example, is the athlete uh, having adequate intake before, during, and after training? 
are the different days of eating adequate to all the variations of periodization? So I think the first step would be a nutritionist. But mm -hmm. if negative body image or disordered eating uh, behaviors are identified, I think a psychologist would be also a very important part of the team that would be mm -hmm. able to analyze and see if there's more uh, to eat than only disordered eating and see what uh, are the steps to improve the, the relationship of the athlete with their eating food ways mm -hmm. or the, the, the ways they eat. And of course, uh, look into the exercise and load and see if it's, it has to be adjusted. Uh, mm -hmm. If the, the athlete is actually already confirmed for low energy availability, it would be necessary to increase energy intake and decrease exercise to make it balanced. Mm -hmm. And follow this athlete to guarantee that he, she will have a full recovery of the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And obviously there'd be some, some sports medicine input as well in terms of assessments uh, from a clinical yes, perspective. Yeah. yeah. Often also <laughs> the, the, the medical staff should be aware and do all the kinds of examinations and tests that could confirm the situation. Definitely. Mm. Uh, I think I, I mentioned nutrition and psychology because I'm working with a psychology colleague in all this nutrition education, uh, promotion yeah. of no. good uh, nutrition for athletes. So I always think first of nutrition and psychology, but of course, it, it will also have the, the physiotherapy, which might have helped to understand all these uh, fractures and how to mm -hmm. recover athletes from lesions. So... I think the team has to be complete with all the professionals that are able to bring insights into athletes' care. And mm -hmm. especially if we could, if you can have a, a real interdisciplinary, not only multidisciplinary, but that the team can uh, really exchange the, all the, the knowledge and information and all act together for the care of the athlete. This is mm -hmm. the ideal situation, unfortunately not a reality in all countries. Mm. Let's hope that over time it becomes more of a reality, particularly within the para-athlete population. Mm -hmm. yep. yes, well, thank you, Claudia. That's That's been a great overview of low energy availability and REDS for us. And I think it's it's a great job that you've been able to explain all of the different parameters and it's such a challenging area that it's still we're still learning more and more about but the more you look into it the more you realize that each athlete needs to be assessed on their own merits but it's something that needs to be considered when an athlete's failing to to really cope well with training would you say mm -hmm. yes yep. this is uh, very important that they they should be able to have a better understanding of their training load. Yep, yep. Fantastic. Well, Claudia, I know you've got a busy schedule coming up, but there's one last question that we need to ask you. What's your favourite food? My favourite food? Oh, my God, chocolate. <laughs> I thought you were going to say coffee because your husband's a, a coffee bean assessor. But no, chocolate, okay. Uh, dark, milk. <laughs> Any particular type of chocolate? 
any chocolate. I prefer the Belgian type. <laughs> oh, now you're talking. <laughs> It's about chocolate. It's a problem for a nutritionist sometimes, but I think I it's it's my favorite food, definitely. <laughs> well, we are all human after all. What's Brazilian chocolate like? Uh, no, 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 it's no good. No. <laughs> okay. Please send care packages to Claudia of good Belgian chocolate. <laughs> No, yes. I, I, I asked once uh, our colleague uh, from Belgium, Yves, he was coming mm -hmm. to Brazil and I, I said, we don't know each other very well, but I'm so sorry, but I love Belgian chocolate. But would, would it be okay for you to bring me some bars? But he was so excited about it, but he was already in Brazil. So <laughs> he wasn't able to bring me the chocolate. Oh, rotter. <laughs> Well, Claudia, it's been fabulous talking to you and I really appreciate your insights and your experience with this topic and we look forward to hopefully hearing a little bit more from your research to come. Let's hope, Liz. It was really um, an honour to be invited by you. I find you, you know, I'm really a fan. You are my favourite <laughs> nutritionist and so thank you so much for believing in my work and I do hope my research gets through. It's been very hard to work researching here in Brazil lately due to some education cuts, monetary yeah. cuts, but let's hope I can continue my research and thank you so much for asking me to, to talk to you. Pleasure. And Claudia's done a terrific job of explaining the diversity of low energy availability along with the complexity of assessing it and monitoring it in athletes. I think it highlights how important it is for athletes to have the right tools and understanding and knowledge about how to support their training effectively and ensure that they're eating sufficiently, particularly around heavier training loads and even for body composition management. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to leave some feedback for us, please do so on the website. We're always happy to hear about anyone you're interested in hearing from. Please join us next time when we talk to Kendall Gretsch, who is both a paratriathlete as well as a paranautic skier for Team USA.